The Law Report with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. Well, this evening we're focusing on family law. So that's anything to do with marriage, divorce, maintenance, custody of children, all those sorts of things. And I'm joined in studio this evening by attorney Gillian Lowndes. She's a partner in Lowndes Dlamini, practicing in Johannesburg. And she specializes in matrimonial law and deals with all matters pertaining to family and child law, both defended and undefended divorce, primary residency and contact commercial issues arising from matrimonial and divorce-related matters. So after all that, Gillian, good evening and welcome to the show. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having me on. And just a reminder, if you need any information regarding the Law Report, you can find it on Facebook. Just go to Law on SAFM. If you'd still like to contact me directly, you can email me on law at safm.co.za. Gillian, I mentioned all those issues about divorce and matrimonial law and child and family, but things have changed quite dramatically since 1979 because before that, there were certain grounds for divorce in South Africa. Now it's not quite as strict as that. It's it's almost easier now, isn't it? You know, Karen, the issue, um, well, the main reason that you get divorced these days is um, an irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. Mm. So, you know, in the States, you see PIs running around taking pictures of people who are having affairs and um, it's all very exciting and very cut and thrust. But in South Africa, all you have to show is that your relationship has broken down irretrievably and that there's no prospect of a restoration of a normal marital relationship between you. And you can use any grounds for that, whether it's an affair, um, whether you no longer communicate, whether you no longer love one another, have affection for one another, um, you know, any ground that that actually exists between the two of you that will convince a court that your relationship has broken down irretrievably is the main reason for divorce these days. So we have what's known as a no-fault divorce system. So what you see in the States doesn't happen here in South Africa. And, you know, a lot of clients come in and they say to me, well, my spouse is having an affair. Um, Do I need to get a PI involved? Do I need proof? How do I take this person down? And it's unnecessary. Um, It it weighs in as a factor and as a cause of of the breakdown. One of the causes, one of the reasons, but it's no longer the main reason and it's no longer a complete ground for divorce. When it comes to irretrievable breakdown of the marriage, can a court ever refuse a divorce on this basis? You know, Karen, the judge does always have a discretion, but if you have shown on the grounds presented that your marriage has broken down, that your relationship cannot be restored, then whilst the court has a discretion, it's very, very rarely exercised. And I've never seen in in my practice, in, in my experience, I've never seen that happen. Well, if you have any questions for us this evening, you can call us on 0892102010. Before we chat more about this, Gillian, I've had two emails today when people heard that you were coming on um, with questions, and I wondered if I might just ask those. The one is the first one is from Bridget, and she says, "I was divorced 13 years ago, but not with my knowledge. He only gave me the copy of the divorce after two months. He had an affair with his colleague, and she was five months pregnant when he divorced me. I received nothing." I have custody of my son. He had our house repossessed and he's a government worker. I'm not quite sure if that's relevant. She says, I know it's a long time ago, but I've been everywhere and I'm getting no help. What about his pension? I'm only receiving 1,200 rand per month and my son is on his medical aid. My son is now 19 years old and I've paid for everything so far, school fees, etc. Please help. What can I do? 
Wow, those facts are extreme. I've never come across something like mm. that before. You know, when you institute a divorce action, the first um, the first step you have to take is to obtain personal service of that action on the spouse that you intend divorcing. And the sheriff of the court has to hand that document to them personally. It, it can't be attached to a front door or left with your, your domestic helper or, your, um, or a friend who might be visiting. It actually has to be handed to you. And once you receive that document, it's stated very clearly that if you intend defending the proceedings, you have to do so within 10 court days. That's weekdays excluding um, weekends and public holidays. You then have an opportunity to defend the action. Now, I would assume that Bridget didn't do that and that the divorce then went ahead on an undefended basis um, and that her husband went to court and he divorced her. Um, you know, to leave it for 13 years and not be able to get any recourse, I'm quite alarmed at the situation that she finds herself in. Um, obviously, depending on the way she was married, whether it was in community or um, ANC with accrual, which which is what it probably was, that's the latter, she would be entitled to a certain um, uh, sum of money from her, from her ex-spouse. Um, at that stage, she would have actually been entitled to proceed against the girlfriend, although the law has changed in that regard. So she certainly had rights. Um, and and if he erroneously misrepresented, or not erroneously, if he misrepresented to the court um, whether or not that action had been properly hand-delivered by the sheriff to Bridget, um, and whether she was granted an opportunity to defend it, or if she wasn't granted an opportunity to defend it, then this divorce was erroneously obtained. Because she said he only gave her the copy of the divorce order two months later. And she says, that she asks, what about his pension? Now, we did do something on pension law not that long ago, and there is this whole thing about mm. pension and divorce. She would mm. be entitled to something. Karen, absolutely, she would be. Your pension forms an asset. It's an asset in your estate for the purposes of calculating whether it's your accrual or whether it's calculating the joint estate between the two of you in an in-community of property estate. Now, he's a government worker, so that would be a government pension fund. In your um, normal corporate pension funds, for, for want of a better word, um, there are regulations and, and amendments to the Pension Funds Amendment Act, which states that she would be entitled to obtain a payout, her share of that pension fund, um, as an asset in his estate with immediate effect. But that doesn't apply to government pension funds. So you can't get the immediate payout as you would with a corporate pension fund, but it certainly forms part of his estate. Um, and she would have been entitled to a share in that asset, unless, of course, they were married out of community of property, which means they had separate estates, and neither of them would be entitled to a share in the other's estate. But that's unlikely. It's an unusual way of getting married these days. Most people are either married in community of property or ANC with accrual. So she certainly would have been entitled to a share um, in his assets. So what can she do now? I mean, she says it's 13 years later and she's been trying. She says, I know it's a long time ago, but I've been everywhere, everywhere with no help from anyone. What can Is it too late now or can she still institute some sort of a claim? You know, Karen, she would be what I would call an exam question client. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I'd hate to be one of those. Yeah, you know, and there are some of them out there, but they're always the nice ones to deal with because they, you know, they're challenging. Um, and you have to do a little bit of research and you have to dig deep. And it's not a straightforward matter. It's actually a lovely matter for an attorney to have. Um but the, the, the starting point is my difficulty with her email and the, the main red flag that goes up for me is he handed a copy 
of the divorce order to me two months after it was granted. Sounds to me like she wasn't properly served by the sheriff. Sounds like there wasn't proper service of this summons. And if there wasn't, the divorce order um, was erroneously granted by the court. So I would suggest that she go and see an attorney and see what she can do about actually setting that order aside. And, And then what you've got to do is you've got to unscramble the egg. So you have to go back to what he was worth at the time um, he, he obtained the divorce order and then work from there and see what she would have been entitled to. So you basically, I'm not, not sure if I'm understanding this correctly, but potentially could they not even actually be really divorced? Potentially, I would say they're not divorced because it sounds as though there wasn't proper service. Okay, and if she says she's only receiving 1,200 rand a month and doesn't sound like she's very you know, able to pay big fees, would this be something that legal aid or maybe the Law Society of Pro Bono attorney would take on something like this? Karen, there are various pro bono organizations out there. Legal aid, to qualify for legal aid, you have to be indigent. I mean, the test is Mm. quite a strenuous one. Um, If she's working and she's obtaining some form of a salary, she probably wouldn't qualify for legal aid. There are other pro bono organizations out there. Up here on the Highfield, you've got probono.org who do a lot of good work. Um, You also have attorneys who have large pro bono departments. Most firms do pro bono work, but obviously the the person in question has to qualify um, to have an attorney act pro bono for them. But of course, um, you must remember that it's not only the high courts now that can entertain family matters. Um, your magistrate's courts can also, um, other than guardianship applications, they are divorce courts, they are children's courts, and they can entertain this form um, of action. But, uh, you know, it's not simple and it's not straightforward. And I wouldn't recommend to somebody in Bridget's position that she tackle this on her own. I would suggest that she go and see an attorney or a couple of attorneys until she finds one that she actually likes and one that charges at a rate um, which uh, she can manage according to whatever it is that she's earning. And naturally, if her her husband, if he is still her husband mm. or her ex-husband, whatever he may be, if he did set about this in an underhand manner, she would be entitled to claim um, any costs from him as well. Okay. So, Bridget, if you're listening, I did tell you we were going to discuss your question today. Please don't leave this. I know it's been 13 years, but by the sounds of it, you do have a case. So I would investigate this as soon as possible. Go and find yourself an attorney and, you know, try and see what you can do. Because as Gillian says, you know, there are a few things that put up a few red flags here. And uh, I think it is something you need to follow up. Because by all accounts, I would imagine that the son would have been six at the time of this. Mm. So, you know, and she's and she he's paid nothing. For, towards the, the son's education or upbringing or anything. He's paid nothing. And, you know, Karen, regardless of whether or not they are married, uh, they both have a reciprocal obligation to support the child according to their means and according to the child's needs. Um, so the maintenance aspect of this is not affected at all by by whether or not the divorce order was, was properly granted and appropriately granted by the court. Could she claim sort of maintenance in retro- retrospectively? Absolutely, she could. And she doesn't need to go to the High Court for that. She can go to any magistrate's court in the, the area in which her child resides. So the court with jurisdiction is either the High Court or the magistrate's court within which the child resides. Right, okay. The next email was from Elzette, and it's rather a long, involved story. She says, on Friday, my... my ch- 
myself and my child's father are going to court for maintenance because he doesn't support his child. He doesn't even come and visit her, and he only saw his child earlier once earlier this year. He didn't even buy her anything or even phone her. The reason why my child's father doesn't support her anymore is because I took his sister-in-law to court because she was harassing me and my two-year-old daughter. Now the sister-in-law is guilty. I've got my proof of that, and my child's whole family took the sister-in-law's side. Now they know the truth and now they want to see the child again after a year of not seeing her. I need to set up some strict rules for the child's father to follow because he can't protect or defend his own child. I don't know how to go about doing that. For example, my child is not allowed to go to her father's house if he wants to see her. He must call and make an appointment and come and see her at our house. I will feel safer and I'll be able to watch them because the bond between the child and the father is gone. I can't trust my child's father with his family now. I will have to be very careful when my child is around him. I need to draw up something that the father will adhere to strictly because my child's safety comes first. Thank you very much. So she's looking for some advice on how to draw up some sort of a document to allow the you know only allow the father to have visitation at her house, not allow the child to go there. Because obviously, there's some bad blood with his family by all mm. accounts. Mm. You know, Karen, this is an interesting one as well. LZ doesn't say whether or not the, um, she was previously married to the father of the child. No, she doesn't. Mm. So the Children's Act... Although she does mention, she says, I took the sister-in-law. or his, No, she's, no, it was his sister-in-law, sorry, mm. to court. So that just still doesn't mean anything. I thought mm. she said mine. No, it's his sister-in-law. So basically, in terms of the Children's Act, if you are living with the mother of the child um, at a time when the child could have been conceived... Or if you are living with, a chi- uh, with the, the mother of the child at the time that the child is born or at any time in between, um, you can apply for parental responsibilities and rights as, as the, the natural father of the child if they're born out of wedlock. Alternatively, of course, if you're married um, to the mother of the child, then you automatically acquire those responsibilities and rights. Now, um, I'm not going to go too deeply into uh, children born out of wedlock. I assume that this is a father who has responsibilities and rights, but who has been shirking them for the purposes of my answer. Mm. Now, if he has responsibilities and rights, he has the right to have contact with a child. And the court will do what's in the best interests of the child. So gone are the days where you've got a custodian parent and two guardian parents. What the Children's Act has tried to achieve is to confer equal responsibilities and rights on parents of children. So the maternal preference which which used to exist, and, and by that I mean in a divorce situation or in a custody application situation, the courts would often confer custody on a mother because they would say that women are better suited to care for children. Um, and as such, children usually, unless there are extreme situations or circumstances, should be given to a mother for her to care for the children in a custody situation. We've now got care and we've got responsibilities and rights and care forms a subsection of responsibilities towards a child. And effectively, parents have equal responsibilities and rights and equal rights of contact with children. Now, what you find in a divorce situation or in a situation where parents have separated is that the child will ordinarily reside on a primary basis with one or other of the parents and the other one will have contact. You do obviously get situations where the children reside with both parents equally or on an almost equal basis and then contact doesn't really come into play. But now what Elzette's talking about is she's wanting to confer supervised contact Mm. on the father of the child where he's never left alone with a child and the child only sees him in an environment where there is somebody present with the father and the child at all times. Now, 
my difficulty with with LZ's situation is I can I can hear that she's concerned about a situation which arose with his family, but I'm not hearing that there's been any abuse, any drug abuse, any alcohol um, addiction that's come into play, um, any bad blood between the father and the child. It does appear as though the, the, the father's had a limited involvement in the child's life for a fair length of time. So... Uh, in a situation where, for example, the father replied to the court for contact with the child, I would imagine that the court would grant a phased-in contact type arrangement where he would see the child maybe for one day a weekend or one afternoon on a weekend or even on a supervised basis. But ultimately, if he was interested in having a relationship with his child, he would over time be able to develop that relationship. And I'm doubtful whether or not she would be entitled to call the shots and to prescribe to him how that relationship would would um, evolve and run. So he is entitled to contact with his child, possibly on a phased-in um, basis at first, but his parental responsibilities and rights are significantly stronger than they were historically. Yeah, she was just concerned because he hadn't bothered to contact the child for over a year. Um, because there was a problem with her and his family, yes. so which I found find a little bit odd. You know, if it's his child, it shouldn't really matter. You know, he should be contacting the child regardless of what's going on with the mother and his sister-in-law. Absolutely, and that's why I say that I think phased-in contact would be a very good idea, possibly on a supervised basis at mm. first, but um, generally. Um, it's in the best interest of a child to have a relationship with both parents unless, you know, unless there are factors that come into play that make it to be not so and which would make um, uh, a situation where the court would have to step in and say, well, you know, the father is doing X, Y and Z and we don't believe that it's in the best interest of the child to have contact with him on an unsupervised basis. But I'm not hearing any of that. All I'm hearing is that we have a, a disinterested father, somebody who hasn't had a relationship with the child for a certain amount of time. And he would certainly have to make amends and take small steps in rekindling that relationship with the child, gaining the child's trust and, and ultimately rebuilding that relationship. But um, he would not be constrained to have supervised access for the rest of his relationship with that child if he did take those steps. You're tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is attorney Gillian Lowndes and we're talking about family law. If you have any questions, you can call us now on 0892 10-2010, We have Nella in Johannesburg on the line. Nella, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good evening. You want, want, to, you want to talk about customary marriage? Yes. I just want to ask this question. If ever someone else paid Lobola for you, but the process is not yet complete, when I say it's not yet complete, this is a situation whereby one will pay a, a first part of the money just to introduce the two families together. And then it happens that things don't go well between the two people. Is that uh, regarded as in community or what? How, how is it like implicate both of us? Sorry, Nella, I'm, I'm a little bit confused. You say that there's a certain amount of money paid to, to, as an introduction between the two families. Yeah, to, to the... To, to the uh, let's say if, if as, as, as a woman someone paid Lobola for me but they didn't finish the whole process and things don't go well between me and whoever I can call my fiancé or whatever so what will happen in terms of uh, uh, choose of in community and not in community no that the only happens when you actually get married Nella you have to actually be married to be married in community or out of community as a, of property it doesn't it doesn't I, if I'm, I'm not sure if I'm correct here Jillian but I don't mm. think it applies before you actually 
get legally married. Can I jump in? Mm, please do. Um, mm-hmm. Hi, Nilo, and um, thanks for, for the call. In terms of the, Yes, in terms of the Recognition of Customary Marriages Act, if, mm-hmm. you have, if you have taken all of the steps and fulfilled all of the requirements for a customary mm-hmm. marriage in terms mm-hmm. of your customary rights, and, mm-hmm. and it is a monogamous marriage, so there is only one wife, then mm-hmm. um, and once all of those steps have been taken and all of the rights have been fulfilled, then you mm-hmm. do you do have a customary marriage. And in terms of the recognition of customary marriages act, you are married in community of property. As I said, though, the marriage must be a monogamous one. Um, and if it's polygamous, there are various provisions in the act that you have to comply with. Okay, only if the processes are fulfilled, all the yes, processes are yes. fulfilled. But if it's not, it's none involved, if I understand you. Yes, Nilla, if all of the steps haven't been taken or completed, then you, mm-hmm. don't, you don't as yet have a customary marriage in terms of the recognition of Customary Marriages Act. Okay, okay. No, thank you very much. Does that help you, Nella? Yeah, it does a lot. Because I didn't know if you ask various people who deals with this, one will tell you no. That is considered as in community, even if the the process of logella is not yet completed. So I was a little bit confused. What is going on here? You know, if you hear it from professionals, you end up being so confused. Well, Jillian is the ultimate professional on this, um, Nella. So you can take her word for it. That has mm-hmm. to be complete. It's it's the same as if you get married and with not not a customary marriage, but a regular marriage. You have to actually get to the end and get married to you know have a in or out of community of property. And it's the same from what I gather now from Gillian. You have to have completed all the requirements and got to the sort of the end point where it becomes a customary marriage, as an actual marriage. And then, am I correct, Gillian? Then it's then it's in community uh, of property. Yes, that's mm. right. And you know there was yeah. a, there was a case where there wasn't a proper handing over of the bride. So that was the one mm-hmm. that that was the one step that hadn't yet been completed, and the court did find that there there wasn't a customary marriage. Okay, but in case of uh, everything is, is is done and uh, the process is complete, is is uh, is the if the marriage is not yet uh, what is that registered? Is that also regarded as customary marriage? If I understand you, but yes. say your husband passed on in in, in in that kind of a case, is one entitled to anything that? Uh, the husband left as part of uh, pensions and everything because uh, it happened that uh, one of the ladies that I know, the, the, the partner passed on while they were fully married as in customary marriage where they fulfilled the whole process. But the woman has never given anything of the assets, only the kids to that woman were given anything not being out of the will of the partner is a written will or anything. Okay. But the court, the high court, decided to do it that way. No, the, Even the, the mother-in-law accepted that, yes, I know this person is my, uh, my, uh, my daughter-in-law, but they decided to disregard the woman as a wife. Um, if I could say common law spouse, if they referred to her as a common law spouse. Now you see, there's something very different between a customary marriage and a common law spouse. Mm-hmm. So if she mm-hmm. was married in accordance with customary rights, all the steps had been completed, and it mm-hmm. was and it was a customary marriage for the purposes of the recognition of Customary Marriages Act, she would mm-hmm. then be married in community of property unless she and her husband had decided to enter into, an, into a contract, an anti-nuptial contract, um, and either exclude community of profit and loss 
um, mm-hmm. or get married in accordance with the accrual system. And if mm-hmm. there was a valid customary marriage along one of those grounds, unless she was mm-hmm. out of community of property, she would have a claim in his estate when he died. If she was a common law spouse, our law affords no recognition to a common law spouse. Um, what is a com- what is actually a common law spouse? A common law sp- confused. Yes, yeah, so a common law spouse is where a man and a woman simply live together and they haven't entered into a marriage, whether it's a civil marriage in terms of the Marriage Act or the Civil Union Act or in terms of the recognition of customary marriages act. So there is no marriage. It's simply a man and a woman living together. I'm not going to confuse mm-hmm. it. There, there are limited circumstances where the law gives recognition to such a union. But generally mm-hmm. speaking, generally speaking, our law doesn't recognize um, a common law marriage per se, where it's simply a, a man and a woman living together. Yeah, yeah, but in this case, they, they were not living together. But the process of Lobola where two families have and there's parties from one family and parties from another family. There's evidence of that. So, but they regarded her as a common law spouse. That's what uh, what surprised, what actually, you know, bothered, bothered us. Mm. Again, if if all of the steps had been completed, she would then mm. have a customary marriage and she would then have a claim in his estate. So if it happened, that person is no more, what will happen in the estate is already out. Are you saying once the, the spouse has already passed away? Yeah, the spouse passed away and, and even uh, maybe the woman passed away as well. What will happen to the estate as it is already being at high court mm. to the kids? Well, yeah. her estate, the executor mm-hmm. of her estate would have a claim against the executor of his estate as well if there was a valid marriage and if they weren't married out of community of property. She, her estate would then have a claim in his estate. Okay, no, thank you very okay, much. Okay, does that help you now? Okay, well, yeah, it does help me a lot. Good. Uh, if I can get where your offices are so that one can consult thoroughly, because sometimes, oh, you know, here one cannot divulge all the information and the facts out. That will help me more. Mm. Nella, yeah. the Jillian's office number will be up on the website, on, on my Facebook page to, by tomorrow. So if you have a look at law on SAFM, law at SAFM, on the Facebook page, you'll find um, Jillian's office number there. Okay, okay. And if you need to make an appointment for an, for a, a meeting with her. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, yeah. Nella. Really, Good night. All right, bye-bye. Bye. If you have any questions, you can call us on 0892-10-2010, 0892-10-2010. Sipo in Pumalanga, good evening. Good evening. How can we help you, Sipo? Yes, yeah. I just want to ask that uh, my wife... He came to me just in to say that uh, he wants us to divorce, but uh, she wants me to fight for divorce. She doesn't want to fight it herself. And also, I want to I want to know what happens to our debts uh, when we divorce, as we are not waiting. Or we would be responsible for each other's debts, or each person would be responsible for her own or his own debts. I listen on the radio. Okay, just hang on a second, Sipu, before you go. Are you still there? Yes. How are you married, Sipu? Uh, I like to believe it's uh, in community of property. Okay, all right. Then Jillian can answer you now that she knows that, that question. I'm sure you were going to ask that, Jillian. Yes, I was. Right, That's okay. Fine. <laughs> so, right, so, okay. and also curious as to why his wife wants him to file. Does that make any difference? It doesn't make a difference. I think it's just the cost aspect of it. Um, mm. You probably find that she... 
um, is not working or she doesn't. No, he said they're both working. They're both working. Mm, And they both have debts. She probably wants him to incur the cost of instituting the divorce action, consulting with an attorney or taking the necessary steps to institute the action. Sipo, if you're married in community of property, um, your assets and your liabilities are pooled in one estate. So effectively, um, once you are divorced, the net asset value will be divided between the two of you um, if there is a net asset value. And once you're divorced, then your your debts become your own. So... um, you know, I don't know whether your, your assets um, exceed your liabilities or whether it's the other way around, but you remain responsible jointly while you are married for any liabilities which you incur as a couple married in community of property. But once you are divorced, then you can no longer incur debts um, on, on behalf of one another and you're no longer responsible for debts incurred post the divorce date. However, of course, a divorce does not absolve you from any liabilities which you've incurred during the, the course of the marriage in the joint estate. So if you're owing money, for example, to the banks, just for example, you owe the bank 50,000 rand as a couple, you on the divorce, you will each owe the bank effectively 25,000 rand. Exactly, yes. You, you're not absolved from that debt. Unless in terms of your divorce agreement, you come to some kind of an arrangement where the one or the other of you assumes um, the debts um, in respect of... Um, you know, whether it's a mortgage bond, whether it's a surety ship that you've signed, but you would have to obviously then get the financial institution to buy into that and accept that that's the way that you want to order your affairs going forward. You can't just do it in isolation of, of you know, of the, of the, um, the creditor. You're tuned to SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. I'm Karen Key, and this is The Law Report. My guest tonight is attorney Gillian Lowndes, and we're talking about family law. If you have any questions, you can call us on 0892 10 2010. 0892 10 2010. Um, we had Chris lined up in room. I'm not sure if he's still there. It sounds like he could have actually just lost that call. Chris, not sure. No, we're about to get Chris back. While we're waiting for Chris to get back on the line, um, talk, I want to talk a little bit about immigration and relocation and the rights of parents when one parent, for example, gets a job overseas and wants to go with the children. What, are the, what does the law say about that these days? That's a very interesting question, Karen. Um, again, the court sits at the upper guardian of all minor children, and the court has to decide what's in the best interests of the children in the circumstances. Um, in South Africa, generally the trend is, and I say this um, with some circumspection, generally the trend is if... Um, The parent who wants to move overseas is the primary resident parent and the children are residing primarily with that person and the prospects overseas are good. There's a job that's been set up. Proper arrangements have been made for the children. They have schools. There's a good network of support around them. Generally, the courts will um, allow that parent to move. In countries like New Zealand, where it's very difficult for the remaining parent to to, uh, maintain contact with the children, generally the courts there are quite circumspect in granting those orders um, and they are not as easy to obtain. But there's a checklist in the Children's Act on what the court considers to be in the best interests of children. And if you go through that checklist, for example, the ease of maintaining contact with both parents, um, the importance for siblings to remain together, the ability of one or other parent to financially, emotionally, psychologically provide for the children, if you go through that checklist, you'll get an idea of what kind of a decision the court will make. So if you are a parent, you want to move overseas, you're currently both living in Johannesburg, the children are living with you for four, uh, for nine days out of the 14, they are having contact with the other parent on the remaining days, um, and you now want to move. If you have a job, 
where you um, in the country you're relocating to. There are schools for the children. You've done proper investigation. You possibly have family over there. And your spouse says to you, well, over my dead body, I'm simply not letting you move with my children. Uh, my relationship with them is too important, and I'm not going to be able to maintain contact with them when you leave. You would then have to approach the court. And, and set out the reasons why you want to go um, and the, the provisions that you've made for when you move over there. And your spouse will then have an opportunity to oppose the application or the action, which whichever you institute, and give their reasons for why they believe that you should remain. And the court will have to take into account all of the factors that are set out in the Children's Act in, in reaching a decision as to what's in the best interest of those children. Um, so, you know, essentially it's very hard to, to advise a person, whether they're the person leaving or the person remaining, what the court will decide. But as I said, generally there is a trend that, that if all of the steps have been taken, if all of the investigations have been properly and appropriately done, and if it is in the best interest of the children to move, the courts will then grant the order. Um, and another aspect that the courts will look into, which is of, very, of huge importance in applications of this nature, is the ease of contact with the children for the remaining parent. And, you know, in this day and age of Skype and FaceTime and, um, you know, the, the fabulous sort of internet uh, connectivity that we've got between states and countries, it makes it a lot easier for parents to stay in touch. But, you know, a Skype telephone call can never be the same mm. as having a person-to-person -person contact with your child. And, you know, it's often such a sad situation where you can actually see that it's probably in the best interest of the children to move with a parent who's wanting to relocate um, but it's not necessarily in the best interest of the remaining parent it's a very sad situation and sometimes it, for the, or, you know it's always it might be in the best interest of the child in inverted commas but oftentimes not really you know, it's a hard one because mm. you really only um, discover the true nature of whether it is in the best interest of the children or not once they're over there mm. and once they have endeavored to maintain contact with the remaining parent. Um, and, you know, also it, it takes um, a, a fairly well-to-do family to be able to afford to fly across continents Absolutely. to visit their children or to fly their children over to, to visit them. And, you know, um, children under a certain age aren't, aren't allowed to fly on a, on a supervised basis. So it would mean that that parent would have to be hopping on a plane and traveling across continents to actually try and maintain that relationship. Um, and it, it's often not an easy task. And it's often very unsettling for the children too. Very unsettling. Know. So it's, it's a very difficult one. So it's obviously something the court has to put its mind to very well to come to a final decision on, I suppose, each case on its own merit. Each case on its own merit. Um, and also, you know, the, the other interesting thing in the Children's Act, which is very far removed from where we were a decade ago or 15 years ago, is that the children's views are of paramount importance or um, their right to be heard is of paramount importance in every decision that's made in regard um, to their well-being. Now, that's not to say that the children have the power or that the children are the driving force behind all decisions. What it means is that you have to take a child's wishes into account when you're making big decisions like this, and you have to hear their views. What age do they, would they take that child's opinion? That's a good question. What the court does is it weights their views in accordance with their age, maturity, and stage of development. So you may get a 13-year-old who's got the maturity of a, a 9 or 10-year-old, and you get some 13-year-olds who've got the maturity of a 16-year-old and actually really do have a very good handle on what it is that they want in life and what it is that they want from their parents. Um, so according to the maturity of the child and their, their stage of development, the court will then 
weight, weight their views and try and disseminate how, how important those views are in the big scheme of things and how well thought out and how well grounded and, and founded they are. Um, and a, another in, uh, interesting aspect of our law which has arisen is that children are often entitled to um, their own legal representation in a matter of this nature. So say, for example, you have a parent who's moving overseas and it looks as though it is in their best interest to move overseas and a child has a very, very strongly held view that they simply don't want to. They don't want to move overseas. They want to maintain contact with both parents. They can actually either have a court-appointed attorney or um, the court can insist the parents appoint an attorney for the children who then represents only the children. They don't represent either of the parents. They cannot take instructions from the parents and they will represent the children and they will represent the children's views and interests to the court. I really like the fact that children have at last got their own voice. You know what, I think it's very heartening for children, particularly in instances where you've got warring parents. Mm. You know, there was a matter recently where the parents just couldn't, they couldn't reach agreement and they were in and out of court and the litigation was was a, a flurry of activity and the children were just getting dragged along with it. And um, the the court actually insisted that the child's views be heard. And, and in the process of doing this, the child came out very strongly against the, the battle that was going on um, between the parents and a mediated environment was set up and, and most of the issues were resolved. You know, I think sometimes parents just need to change their focus from one another to the children. And, and often if that focus is maintained and if, if parents are able to focus on the bigger picture, which is actually the children that are born of the marriage, a lot of issues fall away. Right. Well, if you have any questions, 0892102010, 0892102010. Chris in Potterstrom, good evening. Good evening, Karen. Good you've evening, got, Julian. You've got a very interesting question you want to ask. Mm. Yes. Uh, Karen, uh, me, I've got a two-year-old daughter. Me and the mother was not married. Uh, from the, the time the child was about two and a half months old, we had a domestic argument which ended up in a domestic court. In the domestic court, it was then, uh, the order was given that the child stays with me during the course of the day because the mother just basically dumped the child with me and I take the child to the mother for visitation. That she has, there's no limits on, on, on the days. She can, she, can, she can exercise that any time. She's never done that. I've, I've, I've gone through the, through the normal social channels spoken to the social workers, they were working on this case, but every time they come back to me and say they can't find the mother, yes, yet I see the mother basically on a daily basis. But since the child was about four months old, she's never spent an hour with the child alone. In fact, she doesn't want any contact with the child. Now, I want to adopt the child and have, and, and have the mother totally removed from the scene because that's basically what I, what I seem to, to, to think is her view. She doesn't want anything to do with the child. But uh, through the social system, I'm getting nowhere. And the people are saying they cannot do this. I can't adopt the child if the mother has not given her consent. And I just wanted to find out, is there a legal way that I can go about this in order to have this finalized once and for all? Chris, um, am I hearing you correctly? This is your biological mm. child. Yes, it's my child. And you've been caring for this child from literally from when she was born? Literally from when she was born. And is your name on the birth certificate? 
Yes, he's also got my, my surname as well. Okay. So, Chris, you don't need to adopt this child. You have full parental responsibilities and rights in respect of your child. So there's no formal adoption process that needs to take place. You are the biological father and you have as many rights, if not more rights, than the mother of the child, the biological mother of the child. Now, my problem is, uh, the other day I wanted to do something. I wanted to write in at a crash and, and, some, and they wanted the mother's signature because I think mm. uh, that there's this yeah. old notion that a father cannot really be uh, caring for a child that's young, that's old. There should be a mother around. Mm-hmm. And every time I try to do something, everyone asks me, and even at the clinic, where's the mother? And, and then it takes a long process to explain it. Listen, the mother is nowhere to be found. I, I'm taking care of the child, and that's it. Yeah. You know, Chris, you can bring an application to divest the mother of her responsibilities and rights if she is not exercising any of those responsibilities and rights. Um that would have to be a high court application and obviously quite a costly process. But you as the guardian of the child, you are the guardian and um, and the primary resident parent, you should be entitled. I mean, in terms of the law, you are entitled to make decisions in relation to the child. There are very few decisions that you can't make in respect of this child. So, for example, you can't apply for a passport on your own while the mother still has full parental responsibilities and rights. Um, you can't give consent for her to enter into a marriage when she's underage, etc. But those are, I mean, the, the section in the, in the Children's Act which deals with this is very limited. You have the right to enroll her at a school. You have full rights of guardianship in relation to this child. And the signature of one guardian is sufficient for the purposes of enrolling her in a school. Yeah, because my, my other concern also, Julian, is that uh, let's say four, five, ten years from now, the mother all of a sudden comes back and, and, and now wants to lay claim and, and wants to exercise her parental, uh, uh, whatever you call it, uh, uh, rights that she has. How, how do I go about knowing full well that this is not going to be in the interest of the child? How do I go about preventing that? Chris, I don't know if you've been listening a little earlier in the show, but what you would have to do is then any application by the mother for contact with the child you would have to oppose on the basis that it isn't in the best interest of the child because she has effectively abandoned the child and had no relationship with her. Um, You would have to be mindful of the fact that the the court will make a decision that it considers to be in the best interest of the child. Um, And and if you can show, of course, that the mother will be a bad influence on the child, Possibly, I don't know whether she has any substance abuse problems. Uh, the fact that she has abandoned the child leads me to believe that she has no interest in this child. Um, but if she does pop up out of the woodwork in a decade's time, I think you would probably have a fairly good um, success rate in, in opposing any application by her um, for contact with this child. And of course, the child would then be 10, 11, 12 or 13 years old and the child's views and wishes would also be taken into account. And the child would probably also speak up and say that she doesn't want a relationship with her mother. But of course, I cannot give you any guarantee um, that, the, that the mother would not um, be entitled to any contact with the child. You know, it would have to be left in the hands of the court to decide what was in the best interest of the child and appropriate at the time. You did yeah. mention, though, Gillian, that he could apply to divest the mother of her parental responsibilities, but that, you said, was a high court action and could end up being quite costly. You know, it can be, and also it's not there for the taking. Mm. It's it's a fairly bold step. You know, uh, I'd, how old is your child now, Chris? She's two and a half now. She's very little. So, you know, at this stage, I don't know whether you would be successful in such an application. But, you know, the sad part of all of this, of course, is you can't force a parent to be a good parent. 
You can't force a parent to have contact or maintain contact with a child. But what I would suggest you do is keep a diary and keep a blow-by-blow account of everything that happens with a mother, um, any contact that you have with her, any lack of contact that, uh, that you have with her, birthdays that go by that she doesn't acknowledge, special occasions. Um, so that in the event that one day you do decide to bring an application, you've got all of the facts at your fingertips because you may think now that you'll never forget anything that's happened or any lack of of engagement or activity on her part. But it's important just to keep a diary um, over the years as they pass of anything that happens or any bad influence that she has in the child's life so that if you do decide um, to bring an application, you've got all of the information at your fingertips in, in years to come. No, no, thanks a lot, Julian. Because the other thing that I, that uh, that sounds funny that my parents don't understand also is that I, in no way do I want the mother not to be. I would have liked for her to be mm. involved in the child's in the child's life, but like you say, you can't force someone who who obviously shows that I'm not interested. But I, I, I get what you're saying, and I'm saying very much for the advice. I'll That's a pleasure, that. Chris. Thanks for the call. Thanks, it's Chris, and good luck to you. Thanks for the call. Same to you, Karen. Thanks. Bye. Good night to you. Right, Christopher again, another Chris in East London. Christopher, good evening. Good evening, Karen. Hello. Uh, yeah, good evening, Karen. Hello, how can Karen? we help you? Mm. Karen, I've also got a problem. I hope you can help me in them. Okay, what is the problem? I was married in 1982. Uh, white wedding here in East London. My problem is after six months of getting married now, I've got a letter from Home Affairs now, people telling me that I'm already married. So to a lady in Omatema of since I don't even know her name. So this marriage of mine now was declared null and void in court now. Just hang on, now, Chris- Christopher, just hold it a second. Just let me get this right. You were married in 1982, you said? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. And now, what have you got? Have you got remarried to somebody else now? And that's what's what's been null and void. Only to find out I was already married, of which I don't know about that marriage of nineteen seventy six. There's actually, but Jillian can ask you. A couple of years ago, there was quite a number of these cases with stolen identities at home mm. affairs and and false marriages and all sorts of very strange things. I, I, there's been a number of these cases. There have been, and the Department of Home Affairs seems to have sorted it out. And I, you know, I know that they were taking steps to ensure that it didn't happen because they were all fraudulent. Yes. What I was told now, I must get hold of this Namatema lady and sort it out on my own. That doesn't sound right. No, that doesn't sound right at all, Christopher. I would suggest that you get hold of the Department of Home Affairs. Um, where you reside and advise them that this is a fraudulent marriage, that you were never married to this person um, and it should be removed from their records. I mean, they have the requisite steps that they take. I mean, if you don't even know this woman's surname, I don't know how you would get hold of her. Who told now, for the last 13 years, now I'm staying with, with another lady I'm really in love with who would like also to get married. But now there's this stumbling block on our life. Now, hang on, Chris, what happened to the first wife from 1982? That first one, she, she passed away, but even we were staying now, loose now, okay, people in the vicinity now, yeah, they thought we were still married, but we knew, no, that is declared null and void in court. It's been declared null and void in court? In court, and she passed away now herself, now that lady now. 
this just sounds very strange. If how can they declare it null and void in court if this other marriage wasn't even somebody you knew? They they, they termed it bigamy. Jillian, mm. this just sounds very odd. Mm, it does. You know, Christopher, I, I might be sort of putting the cart before the horse here, but insofar as there are two wives, um, currently you have to make an application to court. So you have to go to court and apply to take a second wife in terms of a customary marriage. So I, I don't know whether there is a valid marriage in existence or whether there isn't, but if there isn't a valid marriage in existence, then you're okay. Yeah. To me, it seems now that one, now this normal term marriage now is valid now the way they put it to me now, Karen. Now, you need to go to home affairs. If, you, if they're telling you that you're married to someone that you don't even know who she is, they need to do some investigation. They can't expect you to go and find her. You don't even have her surname. Mm. Otherwise, Christopher, what I can suggest is you either go to legal aid and see whether or not they can help you or to a university in your area because they have law clinics as well and they have students who are fairly advanced in their, their law degrees who take on matters and endeavor to assist you. And this doesn't sound like a once they have all of the facts at their fingertips, if you set it out for them nicely, it, it doesn't sound as, as complicated as I think it, as, as it is on air. And I'm sure one of the students would be able to assist you with this as well, perhaps accompany you to, to home affairs and try and unravel this for you. Okay, but thanks very much. Okay, Christopher. Good luck. Thanks, Thank you. Time. Thanks. Good night to you. Right, probably our last caller for the evening, Joyce in Boxburg. Good evening. Good day. How are you? Very well, Joyce. How are you? Good, thank you. I would like to ask, say, assume a couple, they are, mar- they are legally married from their country of origin. Can they have their divorce uh, process in South Africa and have a divorce decree? Jillian? Yes, you can, absolutely. Um, it just depends which country you were married in. Okay. Uh, where where were you married? Zim. Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe. And you were married in accordance with the laws of Zimbabwe. That's correct. Now, in, in accordance with South African law, um, when dealing with a foreign marriage, uh, the courts will apply the, the law of the country of the husband's domicile, which means the address that he um, considers to be his home. And, okay. and and um, the address where he was res- was residing at the time of the marriage. So where was your husband domiciled at the time of the marriage? Was he domiciled in Zimbabwe? Yes. Okay. Well, then what the courts will do is they will divorce you here, but they'll apply the laws of the of Zimbabwe in doing so. So it'll be the marital property laws um, uh, in accordance with Zimbabwean law. All right. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. I'm Thanks. Answered. Pleasure. Thanks, Joyce. Right. Thanks for okay, the call. Thank you. Good night Bye. to you. Before we go, Jillian, I just want to let the listeners know about your amazing blog. I've been on it called divorceattorneyjoburg.co.za. And for all of you out there, something really to go and have a look at. There's some amazingly interesting articles. You'll also find some stuff on collaborative divorce, which we did a whole show on that a couple of months back. So a lot of interesting articles on your blog. Um, nice to get to find something this concise and detailed, Jillian. Must Good, take a lot of time to, time to do it. Yeah, it does. And I've got some amazing editors out there who helped me keep it uh, 
simple because they, they can yes. tend to get fairly complicated and, and hard to understand. Yeah, I always like things where I understand what's going on. And I always say if I can understand, I'm sure my listeners will get it too. There so you go. I agree. Yeah, and it's it's really well worth going to have a look at. So if you're looking for some really interesting articles and a lot of information, it's the blog is called divorceattorneyjoburg.co.za. And just as an example, on the front page, I had a look recently before we came on air, things like when can a court refuse to grant a divorce, understanding legal grounds for divorce, collaborative divorce, and new way of thinking, immigration and relocation, what are your rights, rule 34 and divorce settlement gridlock. That sounds a little bit of a nightmare, but basically lots of interesting information out there. And, and as we just said now, we can really understand it. That's always the thing about the law, especially after some of these high profile cases we've been having recently. Um, I think we all of us are armchair attorneys now, get the whole fact of everything wrong, but we do try. It's nice that everybody's had a look at it because yes. it's a nice system. It's quite a quite an exciting um, environment to be in. I think we all learned a lot, though. I think we did. I did, too. I think we all think we're experts now. That's the problem. That's OK, though. <laughs> Makes for good dinnertime conversation. Yeah, sometimes we get the story wrong, though. But uh, it's a good, it's, I think it's been a great learning experience for most of us. And yes. a lot of us, I don't think, understood what actually happens in court. We take a lot of what we think happens from television, as you said earlier. Yes. And that's not what it's like here. It's different. No, it's not. We have a great system. It works well. Well, that's really good to know. But Gillian, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. Hopefully you'll join us again in the new year. That'll be really nice. But thank you so much for your time this evening. Thanks, Corin. Thanks for having me on the show. My guest this evening was attorney Gillian Lowndes, and she's a partner in Lowndes Lamini, practicing in Johannesburg, and she's been my guest on tonight's edition of The Law Report. Well, The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10. And in next week's law program, we're doing the law clinic with attorney Nicolene Skuman-Lowe. We sort of swapped the days around because Nicolene was writing an exam today. So that's why we're doing her next week. And we'll be doing the law clinic. So if you have any general questions, that's the program we do. We don't sort of focus on any one particular thing. So it's not property or labor or anything in particular. It's any of those questions that don't quite fit into the other topics that we discuss on The Law Report. So that's the Law Clinic next week with Attorney Nicolene Skumanlo. And if you have any questions you'd like to get through, if you don't think you're going to be able to call in, you can always email us or drop me a mail to law at safm.co.za and then I'll ask Nicolene the question during the course of the show next week. That's the Law Report next Monday, the 17th of November. And then I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine. It's Health Matters, our monthly phone-in tomorrow. And we'll be discussing diabetes. It's Diabetes Awareness Month. And Professor Larry Distiller will be my guest. So if you have any questions about diabetes or anything you need to know, or if you've recently been diagnosed and you'd like to find out more information about that, Please do tune in tomorrow. We'll have lots of information for you and you'll be able to speak with Dr. Larry Distiller. So join me for that, 9.05 tomorrow on SAFM for the Health Matters phone-in. Well, if you'd like to contact me, you can do so via email on law at safm.co.za. And on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM, don't forget, there's lots of documents, loads and loads of available documents there. Just either drop me a mail to law at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page because there are lots and lots of documents that you can access there. And um, if you'd like any of those, you can either drop me a mail to on the Facebook page. But please do remember to include your email address because a lot of times people ask for documents, don't include their email address, and then I don't have any way of sending them to you. So please do include your email address. And if you don't have access to Facebook, 
you can just drop me that mail to law at safm.co.za and then I will send you a copy of the list. You can choose what you want. Gosh, there must be almost 60 different, or actually over 60 different documents on there and you can have a look. And we mentioned earlier collaborative divorce and there's some documents on that as well. So if you'd like to find out more about that, we did a whole show on that um, a couple of months back and rather interesting it was. So if you'd like to have that, you can ask for that document as well. And um, if there's anything that you'd like possibly for the new year, if there's any topics you'd like to suggest Suggest, please also drop me a mail. We do have some listeners who do write in and ask for specific topics they're looking for, something we haven't possibly covered or we haven't covered in enough detail when we've just been doing a law clinic. Only too happy to take your suggestions, so please do let me know. Well, Stephen Kirk is coming up soon with some nighttime music. Not sure if he's ready and waiting just I yet. Stephen, indeed. are you with us? Yes, I am indeed.